the hand of glory. In occult lore, the hand was cut from the corpse of a hanged thief and covered in virgin wax and the dead man's tallow. It is said to open any door. But how did the hand of glory come to have its fate entwined with the mysteries at the heart of Wormwood? Discover the secrets of this arcane appendage once attached to Dr. Xander Crow as we present Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory. Five thrilling tales of mystery and suspense that span the ages. Hello, my children of the dark and stormy night. I'm David Acampo, and I'm here to welcome you to a special edition podcast of Wormwood, a serialized mystery. This episode is a special post-mortem discussion show, as we occasionally do. As you know, we just wrapped up the first volume of Season 3, Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory. This was a little bit of a departure from our usual program, so we thought it was a good time to get the writers together and discuss the creation and production of our little mini-series. So today I've got with me Jeremy Rogers, who's Wormwood's co-creator and executive producer. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and also with us is Paul Montgomery. Paul is a Wormwood staff writer and a general gentleman of the web. You uh, know Paul from his appearances on the iFanboy podcast and also the Murmur podcast, both of which I are excellent and I highly recommend. So, Paul, welcome. Thanks. Hi. How you doing? Hey, I like that little plug right there at the beginning. That's very nice. I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, Jeremy, Paul, and I sat down and we wrote these stories that you just heard. The origins of this, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it or who mentioned it first, but I had long been wanting to do some more Wormwood fiction, and the idea of writing fiction, kind of pulp fiction and things like that, something in that style seemed really appealing to me. And so somehow we came up with the idea that we would tell the story of the Hand of Glory, which we had talked about in the past, but we had never actually mapped out a timeline specifically. So we all threw our hats in the ring and we um, pitched some timelines and some story ideas and uh, selected the story. So you guys want to talk about that a little bit? Let's talk about um, the stories you picked and why. So uh, I immediately, I'll start since <laughs> since I'm already talking, I immediately picked the um, uh, the Thief of Sepervime story, which I knew I, I knew we needed to talk about the origin of this particular Hand of Glory, because when we came up with the concept of the Hand of Glory, it was based on a very basic idea of the folklore. But I knew as we went along, we would it would have to be a unique version of that object, and that that meant the original owner of the Hand would have to be a unique story to be told. And it kind of came about I'm going to spoil a little bit here, uh, so anyone listening, if you haven't listened to season one and two, uh, you know, this will contain some minor spoilers. Uh, we introduced a character named Adramalek in season two, uh, who has been part of the series from the beginning, and we, and as we decided what to do with Adramalek and how that worked with the overall story, we went, I looked at that time point in history, and we kind of figured out, I think Paul actually found some stuff on it that, that kind of piqued our interest, and uh, kind of started hatching a story of how we could tell a tale that would tie in with that time period, and the one that made sense to me was Robert Howard, do do sort of a Conan story um, with that, and then from there I kind of 
pitch to everyone that we should do different time periods. So we start in 700 BC and we move up and we did um, uh, late 1800s because that made sense, right, Paul, for to do kind mm-hmm. of Edgar right. Allan Poe story. So, you know, you seem to gravitate towards that one. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, uh, Memento Mori. Um, that, that came from a couple of different places. Um, w- when we were working out the different stories, we had a lot of different we, – uh, and, and first off, we were, we were trying to um, match up uh, the different story ideas we had to authors that we wanted to celebrate um, that you know have uh, brought a lot to um, genre fiction, um, whether horror or fantasy or science fiction. And um, there was a lot of authors in the 20th century, but I noticed that we'd sort of jumped from and, – and that also includes Robert E. Howard, although we were writing about a, a much earlier uh, period. But we were neglecting all the centuries in between, so I wanted to make sure we had um, some sort of Victorian writers uh, or even a little bit earlier. So um, Memento Mori is um, sort of my take on the uh, – uh, sort of letter writing style of a Bram Stoker, but also um, Edgar Allan Poe. So it's sort of our, our homage to the 1800s in general. Um, and I, I sort of gravitate towards writing in a flowery Victorian style. And um, I, like as a, as a writer, me personally, like that that's one of the things I've sort of had to, to battle over the years is that um, I, I want to try and be more sparse. Um, so later on, you get to see what, you know, more like my style of writing, but this is um, something sort of uh, near and dear to my heart, which is like really long sentences with a lot of clauses and uh, saying things um, in 10 words when you could say it in, you know, two or three words. Um, and just sort of the, the, the verbose and passionate way that writers used to have with words um, back in that time. So um, that was a lot of fun. It's also the, the sort of the kernel for the, the, um, the plot itself, the mummies in Sicily, was based on a National Geographic article. Um, so ideas come from everywhere. I mean, that's, that's, you know, people always ask, you know, where do ideas come from? It's it's a couple of different things. The voice is an homage to those writers, but the plot itself is just a cool article I read about mummies that are in Sicily. And even to this day, if you go to Sicily, you can check out these crypts, and they have actual mummies lined up against the walls. So it's like you know you can't even make this stuff up. It actually exists. And um, I, I twisted it a little bit. Um, there was um, this article featured this this really sort of startling photo of a mummified young girl. Um, and I changed it. You know, it's it's a boy in in this story, um, because you can do that with fiction. You can twist it and turn it and stuff. So um, it's a little bit of license there. Um, so so basically, that was my story. Uh, it's it was a, it was a very it was very fun to do. It was also very challenging. Uh, it, it's um, like at the end of writing a paragraph, you're like sweating a little bit because it's so so many words and just so, the the character was so sort of. Um, passionate and enthusiastic about everything and so happy to be where he was um, that it, it sort of um, was like a workout, you know, writing through that. So, um, no, but it was, it was a lot of fun to, to do that story. I'm, I'm actually really happy with how that turned out. Um, sort of sort of scary reading it. Um, I couldn't do a, a, a proper English accent. I tried. I was like, I don't think I should do this. Um, and he also, he had to be, he was of Italian descent. So there's a lot of mixing and stuff. I was like, I'll just read this in a regular accent and you can, you know, let the, let the words carry it. And, um, hopefully that worked out. So, well, the fans seem to like it. So, I mean, the, the few things we've seen on the forum, people seem to like it. And I think that was the right choice, you know, vocally and everything. And that, that definitely was, was interesting. Um, I'll step back for a second. You mentioned (laughs) about the time periods and that was really important. Um, 
when we talked about charting the course through time, it made sense to look at different authors that inspired and influenced us. And so to answer that, you know, broad question about why do we choose what we chose, you know, we have a lot of different influences. Pulp is a big influence, but you can't really talk about that without talking about Edgar Allan Poe and Bram Stoker and people who really kind of formulated that. We did kind of go out of sync in that the 700 BC story, I didn't really feel like writing in hieroglyphics or anything like that. So, <laughs> you know, we kind of had to, uh, yeah, exactly. So we kind of had to um, change it up, and it just made sense that even though Robert E. Howard wrote about a fictional time that was 10,000 years BC and was, you know, Hyboria and, you know, this fictional time, but it still kind of recalled a lot of. When you read his stories, the Conan stories, there's a lot of similar. Um, uh, very similar ideas, and you can tell that they're just sort of borrowed liberally, but then fantasized. If that, if I can use mm-hmm. that word that way, um, <laughs> and uh, um, so, so it just made sense that okay, let's actually set it in 700 BC, and uh, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about that as we talk about the process of each one. But you know, given that, as we go up to Edgar Allan Poe, the next one that made the most sense to me was to do something in the 20s and 30s. You know, something that would would fit really closely in with the pulps and so we went with um dashiell hammett uh to me this made the most sense yes okay maybe hp lovecraft would be a little more on the nose but to me that felt a little too on the nose and um and uh, we somebody asked that in the uh, on the website um and i think for me it was important to see the hand as an object because in most folklore well, really, in all folklore, that uh, if you look at the Hand of Glory, if you reference it at all, it's it's an inanimate object. So we did something different with uh, our show in that we attached it to Xander Crow, and I wanted to, but I wanted to show that at certain time periods, this same hand could have been an object. And so, what better way to treat it as an object than uh, you know to treat it the way the Maltese Falcon is treated as an object? So so. My story, Dead Man's Hand, was was really using it like that. It's just an object. It's setting the plot in motion. It's the classic MacGuffin kind of thing, and uh, you know that was a fun one to write in that way. It complete exercise completely different muscles. Although I, you know, managed to go back in and kind of layer some of the creepiness into it, which I think prompted Jeremy to call it um, Dashiell Hammett meets Clive Barker at one point, <laughs> which I thought I thought w- was pretty apt. So then that in turn led to Jeremy's uh, episode, and so Jeremy, why don't you talk about why? we picked Matheson. Uh, we, we were looking for something before modern times, and uh, that he occurred to you. You know, I think there was another author mentioned first before Matheson came came into the picture. Um, I can't think of who that was, though. Um, honestly, I was I was reading The Shrinking Man at the time this project started, so Matheson was actually in my hands at the moment. So, um, I think originally I was leaning more towards a 1950s atomic age story. I had this had this idea of mutated jumping rats in the Mojave Desert that I wanted to play with, but <laughs> realized it, it didn't it didn't fit in the Wormwood universe to ha- suddenly have these you know these military people chasing down giant rats. <laughs> but um, so somewhere along the lines, I started started reading some of Matheson's short stories, which I hadn't really touched before. And uh, his stuff from like the 50s and, 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 and early 60s was very much in line with the Twilight Zone, the stuff he was doing around the same time. And um, kind of morphed it uh, from, the, from the 50s Atomic Age monster movie into this, into this um, 60s surreal tale. 
doing a little research on, on Matheson. I didn't really know much about him as a person beforehand. I, I stumbled upon the town he grew up in, Allendale, New Jersey, and you know, digging into that, seeing if there's any sort of any sort of history to it. Um, there's not. It's pretty pretty small, wealthy community. There's there's this little nature preserve nearby called the Celery Farm, and it's pretty much just a marshland. It, it, it was at one point used um, for celery and beet farming, and over the years it got picked up by the New Jersey Conservation Society as, as a bird watcher's paradise. I like the idea of a marshland being close to the to the hometown where the, the writer who I was trying to emulate grew up in, and the first thought was, well, that's where the body would go. And from that, I just... I, I, I wrote and wrote a lot until I finally got the the kind of story I wanted and the voice I wanted. His voice is, Matheson's voice is very, um, it's, it's very distinct by not really being that distinct. It's all in his ideas, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, his, he's, mm-hmm. he's very, um, he, he's very kind of scientific with the stories that, that he tells um, most of the time. And there, there's, there's a little distance to everything. So it wasn't until I, I stumbled upon a story of his called the holiday man, a really, really short story. Um, great, story about a guy dreading going into work one day and there, there, there's certain details you know there's there's the there's the stack of paper on the desk there's there's the pin there's the there's the couch by the window there's the the shirt the tie very very basic details but until i kind of copied that a little bit in the very opening of the story um, I, I didn't really know what kind of voice of his i wanted to cover matheson has done you know he's done the twilight zone he's done you know books like i am legend um Books like Duel. Um, he's all over the place, and even in the '70s, when he got into things like Hell House, he got more into into the, the whole sexually graphic stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you kind of as put a little bit this, of all of that in there. Then, I, you know? I basically, I basically kind of covered his career from his early '50s stuff to the Twilight Zone stuff to the sexually graphic stuff from the '70s, and then tried to kind of work in this this um, sentimental side towards the end, which he he did do with you know stories like What Dreams May Come, which was not the movie at all. <laughs> if, if, if you read it, it's and it, it was just it was it was a process of just writing and rewriting and just scrapping what I had and starting over and, and scaling it down from these 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 big monsters and the, these big scenes to something a little more more intimate. And I, I think when I finally got the intimate angle with with the Harry Wrightson character, that's when it really started to feel like this is something that's a, an appropriate nod to somebody like Matheson. So you've kind of given us a good segue into talking about. Um the ups and downs of the writing process for each story. I, I kind of wanted to cover that with each of our stories. And we, we've kind of covered the broad strokes, um, you know, how we came to the stories we came to. And uh, it's interesting because it sounds like, you know, um, with, with my story, it had to do a lot with uh, stuff that we uncovered as we were looking at the larger blueprint of Wormwood. And then you could see in Paul's story, you know, there was the National Geographic, there were the mummies, you know, um, and then with yours, it's almost the author's biography and works, you know, kind of all boiled down in the crucible into your story, which is really interesting. I um, was kind of fortunate, too, by by being the fourth story. The the, the hand's yeah. pretty pretty well covered. Everybody knows that's that's what's behind the scene. And I don't think I was even going to mention the hand until you, you said that I, I should. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just assumed that, you know, well, everything is about the hand. 
people are by the fourth story, everybody's going to know. I thought about but, it. I thought, you know, I mean, he could not even re- he could really get away with it. You know, for, for continuity, because we're going to have people looking at this as the literal bridge of what yeah. happened to it step by step. And I don't think we gave them that. And before we talk about the process, I almost forgot. Let's talk about the fifth story really quick and how we came to that, because that one is very interesting. Hopefully everyone's read it by now if you're listening to this, and because we're definitely going to give some spoilers here. This one came about in two ways. Um, we, we wanted to... The final story we knew had to be a more modern story. I think I kind of said something like, let's make it a Stephen King story. You mm-hmm. know? Um, but Paul, at the same time, had pitched us something. And that was a very... A concept very integral to... Wormwood. I don't know how much you want to spoil at this point, Paul, but I'll let you well, no, take I, it. Over. I can, I can, I can talk about how how the the story sort of originated in my mind, and and this sort of goes it goes back before the Five Fingers of Glory idea was that um, when I first sort of joined the writing staff, um, and that was in season two. Um, uh, the thing that I was the most interested in in the whole show was this hand, and I kept, you know, asking you different questions. Well, what's what's the backstory with this? And and it was sort of like, sort of like coming up with different things as we were going along. And and um, you, you had you had some sort of vague ideas about the history of the hand, like where it came from, but the exact like connective tissue wasn't quite there yet. And the, sort of uh, the end point of this whole series is is sort of w- maybe where it started um in thinking that okay well there's Xander Crow has this one hand of glory and this comes from a hanged thief we know that and uh, you know thinking about symmetry thieves have two hands usually um so i was wondering what happened to this other hand so um there's a bit of sleight of hand going on with this series in that um the way that now you can look at it i think it's it's up for interpretation but um i think the you know the way i look at it is maybe this is presented as the genealogy of of crow's hand and we do mention that in the fifth story but i also look at it as the story of the other hand the left hand mm-hmm. crow has the right and um that hand at the end that is bid on by the character henry um she she bids on that left hand um, and you know we we don't want to give too much away, but that's that's going to come into play. And I thought, wouldn't that be interesting to see, um, sort of like what you know what what kind of trouble that could could bring to the little town of Wormwood if there were mm-hmm. two of these things in play? Absolutely. Um, and you'll notice different... that when I went back and wrote my story, the thief is hung, and the Adramalek, the demon in charge, basically says, you know, I want his hands, plural. Mm-hmm. So we we definitely you know that was very intentional. We 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 kind of set this up around your story, around your your idea. We we liked the idea. We thought it was a great idea, and so we knew that once we had that as our final story, um, and and you're absolutely right in that it was a bit of a sleight of hand. Uh, the idea was maybe to you know you think we're talking about you know the genealogy of Crow's hand as you say, but perhaps we're not. And in in the end, I think you know as you said, it's up for interpretation, but pretty clever and i think it sets us up for some nice stuff uh in season three it's it's interesting i have uh, like i have in my mind i've i've come up with my version of the continuity but i don't think that that's that in that important i think everybody who looks at these stories can figure out for themselves what you know they think that you know and and there's a lot of a lot of exploits for either of these hands that are aren't explored even with these five stories there's a lot of time between um, Sephirvim and and uh, modern time. Oh yeah. So we could do a whole um, other series, really. So there, you know, <laughs> it's it's all up to your imagination. But um, 
you know, I, I have a I have a very definite idea in my head. So I mean, maybe you know, we could we could go back to this at at some point. Um, but uh, you know, I there, I think uh, Memento Mori. It's sort of uh, the way I looked at that was uh, that was moving the hand from Europe to, and you don't quite see it in that story, but um, the next stop is is America because we needed to get there for the twentieth century. Um, so there's some some missing threads in there, but um, you know, stuff to stuff to be looked at at another uh, day and time, I guess. Um, yeah, so that so this was this was our modern story, um, the fifth one, and um, I did sort of I started out thinking, okay, like what 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 do I think of Stephen King's voice? And when I think of Stephen King, I think of sort of conversational, um, sort of um, every, um, sort of like an everyman kind of voice. Um, he does do a lot of sort of rustic stories where um, people are plain spoken, there's a lot of slang and everything. Um, so I just looked at it as I wanted to do a first person story um, and, uh, and and do it conversationally. So it's not, it's not per se um, influenced exactly by Stephen King, but mm-hmm. it's, it's just sort of that, like the modern voice. And um, we I decided uh, to change the each previous story had a dedication, an acknowledgement to the works of the author that it was based upon or that it was inspired or influenced by. With, uh, with the final one, we changed that to a dedication to uh, genre writers of the present and future. And I think that works well because it, it definitely – I do think you captured that in the sense of being conversational and modern. I think you know the, the, the stamp on it that uh, immediately pops in my mind is the fact that the uh, protagonist, the uh, narrator, Googles things. Uh-huh. <laughs> you you kind of can't get more modern than that, right? <laughs> yeah, I was you know, I was thinking like, what what kind? How does she figure out you know what what the deal is with this hand? And I was, I was thinking, don't think don't think like a horror story. Don't think like what would they do, you know, in Kolchak the Night Stalker or something like. Don't think about the 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 libraries and the dusty old you know bookstores right. and stuff like that. What would an actual person do? And you would Google it first. That that's just what we do. So. Um, if this is our modern story, I wanted there to be modern solutions. So that's what Henry does. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we've kind of covered a bit of the writing process, but let's just briefly run through ups and downs that we had with each of our stories. Um, <laughs> you know, because I know there were some difficulties. We all had, first of all, I think in a, in a general sense, we've all been writing the scripts and we, we've, we've gotten fairly good at writing the scripts and, and, and really knocking them out in some cases. Um, but uh, switching up and writing a prose short story, but not just writing a prose short story, writing one based upon a specific template. Um, each episode came with its own unique challenges. Um, for my part, The Thief of Sepervime, I, re- I had some trouble. I mean, first of all, Robert Howard writes some pretty purple prose. <laughs> And uh, it was a little tough to kind of I, – I was reading some Conan and some Solomon Kane, And, um, you know, there's a real uh, – there's a quality to writing like that that I think I had not – I had maybe had that beaten out of me at some time back. You know, I mean, this his his tales are full of these, you know – confident warriors that are the best they are at what they do and such, you know. And and it's kind of tough because I like writing flawed, uh, you know, um, conflicted, whiny, uh, emotional guys, you know, or girls. Mm-hmm. And, and so to have this sure swordsman, uh, you know, with a steady hand and, and, and to have everyone be so confident and, and uh, uh, 
it was it was a challenge at first, and it, but it got into it after a while, and it was actually very freeing by the end. At the end, I've got this big action sequence, and I've got him, you know, picking up a spear and throwing it without looking at the guy and just going crazy, and you know, and it was it actually became a lot of fun. You know, I I kind of turned off that editor that said like, oh, that's so cheesy, you know, yeah, that's 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 too over the top, and realized no, I that, like to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I was just I was just going to interrupt and say I like to imagine that as you were writing, you started to kind of jump around acting these <laughs> sort of moves out. I, 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 I'm, I'm sure you did. I had a yardstick that was my broadsword. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you leaped. You know. I whacked the cat once or twice. I'll admit. Have you guys ever seen the uh, the Robert E. Howard movie um, with Vincent D'Onofrio? You know I what? It's, I it's saw... called The Whole Wide World. Yeah. And it's it's you know, uh, I it's sort seen of. That. It's it's his relationship with with um, a girl who actually who wrote I think it's it's based on a, a book that she wrote about her relationship with him, and uh, it's her character is played by Renee Zellweger, and it's just he's a, a large a really larger than life character, and I think if if you're interested in this kind of stuff, definitely check out that movie. Yeah. Um, because it's just like he you know he's got like a, a machete or a sword or something, and he's like going through he, he lives on a farm, and, and he's like like crashing through the weeds and just slashing at everything and and just really big and verbose and, and just typing away pounding at, the, at 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 his uh at his typewriter and it just it it totally sells what you see on the on the page like that complete abandon when he's writing so absolutely yeah and i mean there's something about that you just said about him crashing through with the machete and that reminds me of it takes me back to being a kid and i had like my hand strung bow and quiver of arrows made from sticks you know out in the you know and 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 traipsing all through the sort of countryside imagining this same thing and so there's something very uh um wild about that 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 is very uh um it just—it's very invigorating in some way. Comes from so, like a really pure place. It's like you were saying; you had to sort of like give up your in, internal editor. Yeah. It's like it's—it's it's that place that you write from before you know you you learn how you're supposed to write. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's that's very, it's very cool. It seems like really freeing and a lot of fun. It, it, it to was, write that but way. it was hard to get to that point. I uh, but towards the end, as I was writing the big action sequence, I, I really had given it up. And then I will say that in the very end of the 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 uh, uh, story. And you'll see this, you can even hear it in my reading of the story, I snap more back into my voice. Uh, it's, it's a more poetic voice because we're kind of coming to a, clo- a, sen- a part of point of closure and we're sort of mm-hmm. wrapping it up. And I think I, I kind of gave up trying to be Robert Howard at the time, but I had gotten to that point and then now it was time to let it go and kind of bring it, end it back on kind of a note that was more me, you know. And, and so I thought I had a lot of fun. What What I had difficulty with was marrying that with trying to also be as historically accurate as I as I could. And I will be the first to admit, if you're a professor of ancient studies, <laughs> Middle Eastern <laughs> studies, please, I beg forgiveness. I mean, I, but I did. I mean, I did a lot of, I, I looked at a, looked up a lot of stuff, and I even tried to get images um, of how people would be dressed so that I could then um, look at it and sort of be, and sort of describe it visually as if I were looking at that person standing in front of me and things like that. The names all came from uh, accurate places. I, I, I couldn't find too much about the real land of Samaria. Um, a quick aside is that Robert Howard wrote Conan of Samaria um, as part of this ancient land, but it wasn't the real, but there was a real place, you know, and so I kind of tried to marry those two together. And uh, in the end, you know, it's not historical fiction, you know, it's, it, but it's not, and it's not the, um, 
it's not the Hyborian age of, of Robert E. Howard's Conan, but it's something a little in between. And I think it, I struggled with it for a while, but I think when I finally let go of those of those two aspects, you know, and it all gelled together, it really it really worked well for me. So, Paul, how about Memento Mori? I, you you kind of mentioned already, kind of sweating out those paragraphs. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, um, since I talked about that already, I guess one of the other things is it's it's written in letters, and I intentionally wanted it to write from an unreliable narrator standpoint. Um, both of my stories are, are first person, um, and that's sort of I, I guess that was one way I, I I used of sort of getting into the voice was by being the character instead of writing about the character. Um, that sort of helped me. That, I mean, that, that's something that worked for me. Um, but uh, in in writing these letters, it was it was difficult because you're trying to um, uh, you're, you're trying to to do as as accurate as, as possible um, the way a person would speak um, if they have a history, if they're a real person who has a background and, and a history that they're coming from. Um, but also you want to be you want it to make sense to people who don't know this person and don't know that history. Um, plus the person isn't completely telling the truth. So it was it, it might it might have been a little bit confusing. It was a little tough like keeping track of, okay, so um, how much does the reader know at this point and, and, and you know and all that stuff. So that part was a little difficult. So um, Major props to anybody who has written a really great um, epistolic uh, novel with with all letters um, <laughs> and, and is able to convey that perfect. It's it's really tricky. Um, so basically, the idea is um, um, my interpretation of the story, and I guess you could look at it a couple of different ways. But my interpretation was that this this guy has sort of um, left home from England and gone back to his roots. Um, his father had a plantation in in Sicily, um, an orange grove, and um, uh, he he's left his home because um, he's been disgraced. Um, he I, I thought at first was he a murderer, but but there's other terrible things you can do with your hands, and I, I thought he, this guy is um, he's was basically involved in in a sex crime, um, and who would want new hands and a new lease on life than that kind of person? So, and, and, you know, in another way, it was very difficult writing from a person and, and saying, I, I know what this guy did and, and trying to, to have a positive spin on it because the, the, the reader or listener doesn't know that yet. So that, that was another tricky thing that, that I went through in, in writing that story. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I, I don't, I don't completely recommend that everybody try that. It's, it's tough doing, <laughs> doing a story in letters. Um, it's a lot of work, uh, to put ahead of you. Um, but, uh, I'm glad that, uh, I gave it a shot and, uh, I, I did have fun with it and okay. I did have fun with the, with the language, um, and, uh, and all those clauses. So that was fun. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the research on the mummies and everything. I, I, writing about how a Victorian person who has no restraint in, in how, how uh, excited they can get about what they're seeing and, and having him walk down into a crypt filled with mummies, that's, that's just a lot of fun. Um, because I think, in a sense, when you're, when you're writing modern characters, there's a level, a level of restraint where they don't want to lose their cool. With people in, in period pieces, everything's amazing. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that, that was a lot of fun. 
but again, uh, that's you know, a, a big workout. Because... I think of with Poe too. I think of Edgar Allan yeah. Poe is doing that. You know, there's the revelations have exclamation points, and you know, mm-hmm. and and he's somebody who also did stuff with unre- uh, unreliable narrators at times. So kind of interesting to marry Stoker and Poe in that way, and and kind of take up the letter writing challenge. <laughs> I I think it was I think it worked out really great though you know thank you and uh, so so for Dead Man's Hand uh, <laughs> it was actually a little easier than getting into Howard's stuff because it was a little it's somehow it's a little easier to go into that sparse Hammett like prose you know I've been wanting to write something like that for a while I think and um, and so that made sense to me to to set it that way what I had trouble with is I really wanted to capture the rhythm and the style. Even to the point where I was hyphenating words that Hammett hyphenated that I wouldn't have hyphenated today. Things like that. Oh, wow. You know, I, and, and, and just the way he would construct sentences, I was really trying to do that. Um, uh, even to the point where he would use um, uh, uh, brand names like Bacardi or whatever. And so I put Bull Durham in there and things like that, you know. Um, and uh, so it was very interesting to me to do that. And that, that was kind of the easy part. The hard part is I kept going back to books like the Maltese Falcon and the Thin Man I, I, particularly I had those two in front of me and I would keep reading a little bit and there was so much good stuff I got so into it that I would come up with these ideas and, and what it threatened to do was it threatened to expand my story into an entire novel <laughs> because I was const- I was trying to mimic the construction but he was writing a whole novel <laughs> <laughs> and I was writing a short story and so the toughest time I had is that I would go back to the source to get the voice and make sure I had the voice then rush back to the keyboard you know and start typing but then the ideas would start flowing it would all start coming together and and then before I knew it it was the longest story of all of them Um, so I definitely had trouble with with that Um, and I I, I can't honestly tell you what I did to remedy it I just sort of kept looking I'd have to stop I'd go back to the uh, um, thief story and work on that one and then come back to this one. I actually wrote them at the same time, just overlapping back and forth. Uh, and I finished the thief story first. And that gave me sort of the time to figure out, okay, here's what I need to do. Here's what I need to do. And I knew the basic structure of the mystery, but there were times where I was feeling like I was losing. And I don't know if you guys have experienced this, especially if you're writing something that's a mystery or that's a tale, where I felt like I was kind of, I was throwing out so many clues and so many suspects that I was starting to lose the narrative. Like, what's the end game sure. here? Where, where am I trying to go with that? What am I trying to say? Do I have all my ducks in a row? Is everything perfectly um, uh, linked so that when it all comes together in the end, there's no loose ends? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. on a larger scale, this is what we're trying to do with Wormwood, you know, with season three now. <laughs> but in this particular story, I had to keep working on that. And um, um, I hit a point where he, you know, he finds... Uh, a locket, a pocket watch on the dead man that has a picture of, of the, the wife in it, and it's not the person he's been talking to. And I kind of knew at that point. I said, okay, I got it. This is this is how, you know, I knew that she was going to be. Uh, I had early on that the woman that comes to our hero at the beginning, Harvey Cross, was not who she said she was. I, I knew I was going to do that. Um, it was just a, it was just a matter of how I was going to get to that point, and, um, you know. It was a lot of fun, and I got to introduce some concepts in there that um, that uh, I think can play, that you'll probably see expanded upon further in Season 3. Um, and it had been one I've been wanting to do for a while, which was the idea, we used the folklore of the Hand of Glory, is that if you look at the very basic folklore, it's the idea that the hand can be is said to open any door. 
you know, and, and I think at some point in the series Bible, I'd even wrote perhaps even those inside of someone or something like that, right? Which we never <laughs> actually use too much, but I always like that idea that it's maybe not just literal physical doors, but um, doors to other places. And so I had a scene early on where, you know, his partner um, was lost somewhere else and didn't know where he was. And so I kind of, I liked that as as as, as me going away from the hammock and into the, you know, the more of the horror side, the Lovecraft or the Clive Barker or whoever, um, you know, so, so that, that was kind of fun to marry that in. And in the end, I'm really happy with it. I think I'm most happy with the fact that Joe Thomas, our uh, narrator was able to read that story for me because I think he just brought, brought it to another level and any doubts I had about the writing, (laughs) you know, ended right there. So, so, so yeah, that, that one, it was tough to just make it concise, even though I was writing very sparse prose, but the dialogue was so fun and it kept going and the conversations kept carrying on and it just kept blowing up and it, it wasn't the prose, it was the plot that kept expanding, you know, oh, I got to have another suspect here. Oh, but a double cross, you know, <laughs> just got a little <laughs> crazy. So, uh, so Jeremy with, with, uh, excuse me, sorry about that. I just hit my microphone. Um, Jeremy with Celery Farm, you kind of already talked about, you know, drafting it over and over. How many drafts would you say you went through on that story? I went through the first, probably three pages several several times um it i mean everything from location to character names to at one point harry wrightson wasn't just an anonymous businessman he was a um special effects rear screen projectionist for uh, the film business i mean i just kept changing things and changing things it was really hard to write 5500 something words in this style i'm not used to it and it took me it took me forever um i'm trying to think I think one of the one of the challenges was the fact that the way the story is structured is it, it every two pages it kind of starts over again because it's so surreal it's it's a dream sequence here it's a memory here it's it it keeps starting and stopping so at the at, at the top of each couple of pages it feels more like a Matheson story where it it, it sounds more like him it, it it just it seems like one of his short stories which is probably around the time when I would grab one of his books and and read through one of his short stories again as each section would go on I would start to sound more like Somebody else. I'm not sure who, but didn't quite didn't quite hit the Matheson vibe. Um, there's there's one point where it, I'm not even sure what this is supposed to be or, or who this is supposed to be like, but it's 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 the one scene where he's looking at the picture of his family, and by this point, this is halfway through the story. We don't know anything about his daughter, his his wife, or anything, and we're, we're looking at the picture. Or he's looking at the picture, and he's noticing that. He looked away right before the photographer shot the picture. His wife was caught in a blink, and it's only the daughter that's front and center smiling. It's just a weird, weird image. And I kept going into these surreal touches like that that didn't match what I was trying to do. <laughs> um, um, ultimately, when I set out to do this one, I, I, I wanted to go away from what I thought would be expected and not do the the weird sort of... I don't know if it'd be violent or, or sexually graphic story. I, I want to do something that was a little more um, filled with sorrow. Um, so to do that in this in this nightmarish uh, dream quality and still get the point across by the end that this is the story about a guy who lost his family. He's being manipulated to, to give something up that he doesn't even know that he has or what it is that the person's looking for it was, it was it was a challenge that just kept me writing again and again and again you know i'm i'm giving, I'm giving too much information i'm not giving enough enough mm-hmm. information and then i'm straying from the voice at the same time 
it sounds like a struggle that we all had was here's the influential author how how much do we stick do we mimic them and how much do we let ourselves go off on our own <laughs> and, and then and, and then in the end it's 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 an affectionate nod to matheson it's not it's not yeah. a a copy of matheson yeah i think we all kind so, of hit that point where we kind of exactly got back to our own voice but maybe married with a little you know it still had that influence to it but you know we we'd allowed ourselves to uh, uh stray and kind of get back a little more to our you know sure ultimately the story we had to tell you know mm-hmm. sure so so how, paul how about with now left was a unique one because you not only <laughs> you, you probably had easier times with the conversational tone and the content, uh, the conversational tone and the Definitely. style of writing, it was the continuity and the content that tripped you up a little bit. Exactly. I was very nervous going in um, writing about a character who uh, I get to borrow sometimes, but is is not my own. Um, but uh, and I and I know that that you, Dave, have a, you know a lot of. Um, a lot of love and a lot of uh, a lot of energy poured into Crow's story, a lot of which we haven't seen yet, but mm-hmm. hopefully we will see someday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I had the uh, I had the, the the pleasure and the horrible responsibility of of peeking into one particular corner of Crow's life, and and uh, and and talking about that and um, writing about Crow uh, at a point where. He was not in constant peril in a in a town that you know wanted him dead. Um, was was a lot of fun. Um, I, I got to I got to write uh, really really fun crow. Um, but then you also remember that a lot of the fun in writing crow is when crow is in trouble. Mm-hmm. So getting to that point is very cool. Um, so this is sort of this um, uh, sort of it's not totally about. Um, Crow's turning point, although that plays a big role in this, it's sort of um, the the idea here was that the title is left, and there's a bunch of different um, connotations for that. And what is it like to be one of these characters who is sort of um, tossed aside or um, left in someone's dust uh, when when that other person is you know the hero of their own adventure? Um, and these sort of like scrap characters in in genre fiction who are you know left behind um and um that's and the interesting thing with that is you know originally this this whole this whole story was about this new um antagonist who was going to have the other hand um what's more interesting is if it's not someone who outright hates you but someone who um uh maybe loves you so uh, there's there's going to be a little bit more conflict because it's not it's not a uh, you know a mustache twirling villain, it's someone with much closer, much more intimate ties to our our main character um, that's going to come into play later on, um, and we're teasing the hell out of this. <laughs> I think um, it's but, much juicier conflict this way. You know, it's yeah. much more interesting, and you'll see. Um, but yeah, it was it, it's it's a uh, you know when I was just basically writing totally conversational, so it's sort of the the prose itself just sort of flew and and that was actually a lot of fun um it was it was so that so the but it was the plot the um the bullet points that were that were a little difficult in figuring out when certain things could happen and 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 how to reveal certain things and having you know a a very flamboyant uh popular psychologist turn into an occult detective 
through someone else's eyes is is uh, a, a unique challenge and and how does that person witness this transition of this person um and uh i i and i do have to say dave did help out a great deal on this um with some of the the connective parts because he knew more about crow's uh, history than i do so um uh if if there's any particularly juicy parts in the story that's probably dave uh if it, if it's a, if it's a funny joke it's probably me uh, to give myself some credit but uh, look um, it, you you wrote the whole uh scene with crow as a feral or talking about his feral uh, uh activities and that was gold in my mind so that makes it all worthwhile no i didn't do that much but what happened is and it's it's my fault is that we have a continuity and this is kind of a tease for the audience that we know we know Crow's backstory in a, a good deal of depth, but a lot of it is not out there for everyone to see. We've talked about it, and it's kind of in my head in some notes I've taken. Um, and I will reveal this. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of roping myself into this right now so that I can't turn back. And that Ooh. is that we we did not we specifically did not have this miniseries tell the exact story of how crow got the hand as many of you would have liked to because that story is going to be told as a novel there is a novel that tells the story of crow exactly how he got the hand and follows that adventure this miniseries was never going to be that and we never intended it to be it, it was a bit of as paul said earlier sleight of hand but I do know the events that occur, and we are going to write those events, and uh, they are going. You are going to be able to read or hear them at some point in the future. Um, because of that, Paul had the unenviable task of trying to write this story and then realizing <laughs> that uh, that his editor comes in and says, uh, "You know what? That's uh, not quite how it goes. I didn't tell you this, but <laughs> or I didn't write this down for you, but the timeline goes a little differently." And uh, and then you know we sort of worked together on it and, and smoothed it out uh, in in those couple of spots, which really weren't many, but it really I think it really helps now it's it's a much stronger story you're going to get some more hints in season three about crow's past um i will also reveal that rob allspa is writing a tale right now which tackles roughly that same period of time from yet another angle and that's going to be part of the wormwood portraits series that comes next um and uh and but but the the actual story is going to be told in in a future tale and i believe that's going to be a novel very so cool. there you have it. <laughs> so, so yeah, that one was a little tough with the continuity, and it's something that's been very much on on our minds because as, as season three rolls up, um, we're we're moving next into a series called Wormwood Portraits, which is going to cover you know vignettes of each of the characters, but it does move the plot forward, and then finally, Wormwood Revelation is our final epic, which is going to be just full speed ahead. Every question answered, every you know, everything um, told and revealed, uh, with that one exception. Which we may get more about that, but I'm saying that the the full tale is still to be told another day. Mm-hmm. Um, so with with so those were the ups and downs of our writing process, and I want to briefly just talk about the, the production of these. We did it a little bit differently. Um, if you guys, if you're 
folks who check the credits, then you'll notice that Paul actually edited most of these episodes. Um, so it freed us up to actually get the different actors and authors to read their stories, and then we sent everything to Paul, um, and he was able to edit them together. So do you want to s- mention anything about that production or how, how that just, experience was I'll just you? say um, we're, we're working with some, some very talented uh, voice actors, um, not including Dave and myself, who are, are, are horrible imbeciles. But um, but no, we, we're working with some very talented talented people, and they made my job of editing and piecing this together very easy. Um, uh, just, I think gr- great performances, very true to the voice of the stories themselves. Um, and they could have, they, they could have phoned this in, but they totally didn't. Um, and I was very pleased with how they turned out. Um, I can't imagine, uh, having to do the work that, uh, Dave and Jeremy have to do with the regular episodes, uh, with all the various elements coming together and sound effects and everything. Um, but, uh, audio editing is a lot of fun. I, I had a, a great deal of fun, uh, piecing these together and, uh, putting these out there. Uh, it's, it's, uh, a different way of, of telling these, um, of, of the Wormwood stories. Um, but I think it's, it's a cool experiment and I think it worked out really great. So, and I want to briefly mention for those of you wondering, if you're not clear on it, yes, the next two volumes of season three are going back to this, uh, the dramatic format. We're going to be doing the audio drama again. We wanted to just do something different. We wanted to honor uh, these different authors, and we wanted to change up what we were doing with Wormwood a little bit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the ease of production definitely helped a little bit. It gave us a little more of a break, a little time to regroup and everything. But uh, but really, you know, there's a lot of great audio books out there and audio and patio books and audio casts and things like that with people reading the books, and, and, and it seemed like a great way. I know a lot of people that listen to this show also, you know, listen to a lot of those where it's one author reading and so uh we hope you you were able to bear with us through this because i think we got some good stuff out of it yeah i I think it's it's also consistent with what what we're trying to celebrate with this particular series um and that maybe sounds cheesy but um we're trying to uh, talk about these these great voices in genre fiction that we're emulating and um we're talking about great storytellers and the you know purest way of, of telling a story is sitting down and you know uh recounting a story to someone else so these are sort of just like sitting around the campfire ghost story kind of things with one voice um and and not just reading but doing a sort of solo performance so uh i i, I really thought that was a, an interesting experiment so. very true very true and and it fit very well to tell us the backstory of the hand of glory it fit in perfectly with the seasons we know enough about it and enough about the creation of it with adramalek being revealed that we could actually tell those stories now so it made a perfect bridge um from where we just came from to where we're going next um Another note about the production of this miniseries is we also decided to uh, design a PDF book um, to go with it. So I designed that, and the idea behind this was that, you know, here we are doing prose stories. Well, I know that you can send a PDF through iTunes, and so I thought, hey, this is a great chance for us to have some fun, make a really cool package, and give people something a little more so that they don't feel like they're being cheated by this uh, audio, which, you know, again, like you said, Paul, I mean, this is a a, a, a wonderful form of storytelling, oral storytelling, and, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But uh, I think it was fun to actually combine it with what most of these authors, uh, how you would have read most of these authors, which was in a in a little, in a book. 
you know, so we made a little five by five book. It would fit kind and of. They're like all seat. beautiful. Great job, Dave. <laughs> and um, and and in each one, we each had a chance to write an afterword. Um, and uh, that gave you that, so that that to me is your DVD extras. That's your commentary track. Um, and I also every once in a while threw in a couple things. I think Jeremy's story has a little uh, thing that I threw in there that was how to make your own hand of glory, <laughs> which I've tried, <laughs> and I will blog about that later. So you know, there's some fun stuff on uh, um, within those, and one aspect of that that Jeremy can talk a little bit about is that we, as you know, because I knew that most of the authors were going to be pulp authors. That uh, what goes with uh, pulp author is the spot illustration that would appear in that magazine. So we tried to um, we got an author, uh, I'm sorry, an illustrator, Lance Wolf, who uh, Jeremy found. And so Jeremy, you want to talk about that and your experience of working with him and kind of taking the stories and translating them to artwork. Yeah, yeah, that was it was it was interesting. I was um I, I was at work and trying to think of who would be good to, to bring into this, somebody who could who could do something fast because we had we had a quick turnaround since we were trying to get everything ready for Comic Con. Um I, I I've known Lance for a while and, and, and knew he was he was the model maker and he's a um um what is it? He he's a kit maker and like a Photoshop artist, basically. So I, I, I didn't know that he was an illustrator. So I approached him and asked him if he knew any good illustrators for for this project that we were putting together and explained the project, what it was, what we were looking for. Um, and he just kind of looked at me. He's like, yeah, uh, me. Like, okay, I didn't know you could do that sort of stuff. So he he's, he pulls up his portfolio and shows me a couple of um, couple of like book jacket designs he, he's, he's done and some various things. And it, it was a little science fiction based. That's kind of, kind of his slant. But... The only idea I, I had at you know then on the spot that I, I could tell him that I, I knew we needed was your story, Dave, uh, the Dead Man's Hand. I, I knew you wanted this this 1920s San Francisco based you know pulp, so I, I, I mentioned that to him. And 20 minutes later, he comes over and he's like, "How about something like this?" And it was basically the template that we ended up going with the uh, the, the the figure behind the figure with the bridge in the background. I'm like, well, th- this is perfect. So I I'm, I sent you guys an email collecting brief paragraphs what we needed in each in each illustration because at that point we didn't have anything done yet and i didn't know exactly what everybody else was doing i didn't have my story completely done yet at the time so you guys each sent just brief details of what you wanted you know uh, I, I think i think for left paul you had mentioned that you wanted um this uh, vertigo sort of motif this 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 blonde woman and uh, medical illustrations of hands mm-hmm. like all right so i told him like Okay, think vertigo, think uh, medical illustrations of hands, and then run with that. I, I think the only thing <laughs> I, I think I think the only thing that I, I left out of your description was I think you wanted a, like a doorway with like a shadowy figure of crow, and I, I opted not to even tell him that because I didn't want to put any sort of visual image on crow. Sure. But um, for the but for the most part, it was just you know try these out, and you know, he, he would bring things over to my desk, and he's like, "How's this look? How's this look? How's this look?" And it was all pretty fast. Um, the first one done was uh, the the uh, illustration for Thief. And because we were pressed for time, they, they weren't complete illustrations. They were more Photoshop sort of paste-up jobs. I think for the um, for the, the writer in Thief, it was a it was a combination of a bunch of different elements from 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 movie clips to to actual original illustrations to to textures. I, I think he used the fur from Gladiator. In one background, uh, there's a peacock in there. Um, 
as a, a slight nod. And it, they, they were sort of these, these mashed together compilations. And then, you know, filter through, filter through Photoshop with the stamp tool. And, you know, we got these great, like, WordPress-looking pieces. Yeah, it was great. They were very stark images. So me taking it back into the book design, I was able to convert them very easily to EPS files and then lay, out, uh, lay them out into the book so that they looked like they fit you know, stamped onto that page, that uh, textured page that, that, that I had laid out. Yeah. So, uh, so I know yeah, he, they I, looked great. I know he was very, very happy to do um, Thief and Dead Man. He, he was very thrilled with that. I think, I think his favorite was um, the one for um, um, Memento Mori. He really liked the whole that mummy one was look. Great. I, yeah. It did, mm-hmm. did turn out well. He kind of yelled a bit over a celery farm and left. He didn't <laughs> exactly know what, what to do for either one of those. Um, was was really I, I, I think he was most most challenged with left honestly because it was the vaguest mm. sure it certainly um, worked out well i mean that's yeah, a good yeah, but it, I'm, I'm it, very happy it looked it. It, it, it looked really good so very happy with how all those turned out and you know and it, it's also cool to have a fan you know who's, who's been listening to the show for a while actually get a chance to come in and, and do something for the show yeah 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 which worked for you in both cases because you had Chris Anderson read the your story celery celery farm exactly. excuse me and uh, yeah and and so he he had been a listener of the show as well so it was kind of neat to get to do that with some of our uh, listeners and friends and things like that so Chris you know. has been trying to get a part of the show um since back back in season 1 he's he's been interested in in doing yeah. something for us so it was great to be able to pull him in yeah and you know one thing you've got it. to say about about our our little show is that we love collaboration. I mean, we're definitely these creators who who like to work with every everybody, and 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 you know, definitely as writers, we all sit together and we get on these Skype calls, you know, very similar to this, and we'll just sit there and joke and 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 have fun. But we'll we'll you know throw out ideas, and you'll see when stuff takes off the way that you know smoke starts billowing, <laughs> you know, Jeez. as we all come up with the ideas and put it all together, and uh, you know, and then then working with the actors we've always had a great time working with our actors and we've got some great actors on there and uh this this experience was no different um paul uh, jumping in and helping us edit um you know chris and lance coming in for illustration and for uh uh you know narration and then uh um uh our our all-time you know superstars of joe thomas and sonia perozzi doing the voice doing the narration for two of the stories i mean that's just worked out wonderfully so I'm yeah. very happy with the way this whole thing came together, that we got the joint package of the audio storytelling and the little cool design booklet um, and the, with the illustrations in it and everything. I mean, I'm very happy with overall with the way we did it and the fact that we were able to pay tribute to all these genre fiction authors. Um, you know, I think it's uh, I think it was really great. Um, so with that in mind, I did also put a call out for questions from listeners. And we do have a few questions here. We may have covered some of them. Um, but uh, you guys open to answering some questions real quick? Sure. Sure. All right. Great. Okay. So um, on our forums, and we do have forums, and if you don't know where they are, you can go to our website, wormwoodshow.com. Look on the right-hand column, and you'll see a link that says visit our forums. Um so check it out. We've got some good conversations going on there, and the writers often hit that, and some of the actors as well. So you know you can definitely see some good conversations going on there. So the first set of questions and uh, are from Adna May on the forums, uh, who posted twice, and I combined them. Um, so the questions are: the first question is, 
Which came first, the choice of an author to emulate or the stories you wanted to tell? Did you know the chronology and periods in time you wanted to hit beforehand? And emphasis on the hand there. Um, (laughs) Now, we kind of covered some of this already. Um, uh, You guys want to, anybody want to add to that? Let's see. I think it it was mostly um, sort of choosing the the authors to emulate first, I think for the most part, and then um, the the bookends of the beginning and end, um, those were sort of, we, we sort of knew the concept of the story, basically. Yeah, absolutely true. I would say that stories two through four, we did not have um, strict a, a strict chronology. We did not say, oh, this is where the hand is in 1963 or anything like that. You know, those stories were a bit freer. The the hand had to just be somewhere doing something, and it didn't really matter. The first story had to set everything in motion. The last story had to wind everything up for for the rest of season three. Um, So those were specific. You're right about that. And then the others just kind of like, you know, tell. They were a little freer to just tell a short story set in in a time period of your choosing, as long as it follows a you know, chronological pattern. In other words, we didn't want three stories that were all Edgar Allan Poe stories, you know? Mm. So, so I think that's true. Um, uh, then Adnamay asks, how was it for the writers to record their original works? Was it easier to tell your own stories or do you prefer having the cast articulate them for you? Uh, I will say on my part is that I love having a cast read. <laughs> I had I had one of each in this case in that I had um, I wrote re- read my own story which was fun and I got into it and I had fun you know if you've ever read to a child or something like that I mean I read you know would read and tell stories to my son and things like that and I would get into it and it's a lot of fun um, so I do like that but he, then I hear Joe Thomas read. Dead Man's Hand, and I'm just, you know, on the floor drooling, you know? (laughs) I mean, he did such a great job. And to be honest, yes, I like the audio storytelling, but the ensemble drama, there's something about the electricity between two actors playing off of each other that you can't get in that oral storytelling style. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, one, just to mention, one of my weirder experiences editing <laughs> this together was this <laughs> was Dave's first story, and and when he had to play uh, both a male and female character sort of flirting with each other, uh, and all in Dave's voice. So that that was that was very odd for me. Um, but I, I laughed and laughed and laughed. Uh, so then let's see. And I also had one work that I read myself, and another one that was read by Sonia. Um, I, I definitely prefer the one that was read by Sonia. Um, I was when I. Found out that she was um, going to be reading uh, left. Um, I was both nervous and, uh, and and very very happy about it. I was nervous that um, somebody who's a, who's a very good actor was going to be you know reading my words and and um, you know I, I I haven't written a whole lot. I mean I I do you know write a lot these days, but um, I don't have a lot of experience. So um, having having someone who who is an actor um, going over my words is always a little nerve wracking. Um, but she did a, just a fantastic job on that story. Um, I'm, I'm very happy with how that turned out. Um, I, I did have some fun reading uh, Memento Mori um, as soon as I realized that I shouldn't be trying to do a uh, English accent. Um, it was a little frustrating with the starts and stops and everything because I'm not an experienced voice actor. Um, but it is something that you know I'd like to try to do you know again. But uh, so they were both a lot of fun. Uh, I'll, I'll go with that. <laughs> Jeremy, you want to talk about working with Chris on uh, Celery Farm? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was that was actually pretty cool. Um, it, it was very low key, sort of um, 
production for us. It was it was a bit of a challenge. It took us probably about four hours to record it. Um, and that's my because fault. You because you write complicated it's, sentences. Because it's it, it, it's a pain to read some of my stuff. I, I, I know that. And honestly, I, I play it up for the actors a lot of the times, you know, because they're used to it now. And it's kind of... A, it's kind of kind of a challenge to see if I could trip them up, and <laughs> oh, for they, sure. they can go with it. But you know, Chris hadn't done that before, and he wasn't he wasn't quite prepared. Uh, he wasn't but... quite prepared for the sparring match that you had uh, planned <laughs> for him, huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, I mean, uh, we we sat down, we we read, read through it a few times, we you know turn on the mics, and it was it was a, it was a lot of fun. And by by the time we were done, I mean he was he was totally into it. Now, so, you, and, and I'm sorry, I was just going to say that? you picked him because you wanted you had a certain voice in your head. There was I, I had that. this sort of I had this sort of Jack Lemmon sort of um, voice in mind, and Chris kind of has that nasally voice, which which fit perfectly, and is better than me trying to emulate it or trying to get somebody else to emulate it. He kind of has that naturally, mm-hmm. so it was just a matter of we get him familiar with with the flow of the words, and he. I just assumed he he would sell it, and he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did did uh, so? You had sort of a voice in your head. Did any? Did Paul? Did you have any kind of voice for any of them in your mind before going into it? I don't um, think I did. Not, no, not re- not really. I mean, I uh, I have I actually I have an actress in mind who, if I if there was like a a, a movie or a TV show based on on these characters of of who Henry is, I don't want to say who that is because I want sort of. That's that's sort of the fun of this. Um, oh come on! You're gonna have to tell me off the air. No, I'm, not, I'm gonna pass you off the air. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, just the format of this, I, I think it's it's more fun if if uh, the, the the readers and listeners in, interpret the character their own way. Absolutely. Um, and I, but uh, but it was very interesting to have Sony read that part um, because and again it's not and I was I was a little worried about this. It's not it's not Sparrow in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, that her name is mentioned very briefly. Um, her name is Henry. Um, it's 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 a totally new character but um in a way uh she was uh she filled a, a role in crow's life that that uh, sparrow fills now um a, you know different but you know sort of some mm-hmm. parallels mm-hmm. um so that so that was that was very interesting um to to um to have that voice it's not the exact it's not her sparrow voice exactly mm-hmm. but there's there's hints of that um because it's it's the same actress so um i thought that brought a lot of, of sort of irony to the story. Yeah, as Henry appears in season three, we will have an actor's cast, actor cast um, as playing her role. So it's not going to be uh, Sonya taking on another role, as much as I'd love to give Sonya you know, every role that I can. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was one thing that we discussed before, is like, well, if she reads this story, and I had this, you know, I, I, we had that whole discussion, and I said, no, no, it's, it's Sonya reading the story. So we don't have to worry about casting, you know, um, because uh, I mean, she—I know she's a great reader and uh, can do a fine job on it. But it is true; it's a good point. The fact that the person that plays Sparrow is reading a story narrated by a kind of a, a proto Sparrow, if you will. Yes. Um. That that did cause we discussed it, and we decided, I think, in the end, that you know it, it was going to be all right. <laughs> and I think it really came out great. So. Yeah, maybe, maybe maybe I can pull the curtain back a little bit. I guess I was picturing sort of it, like Dave with sort of a mop head kind of wig. That's who I was picturing as as Henry as I wrote it. Um, because you edited is, together uh, the thief story first, and yes. you just couldn't get over my voice. Really great woman's voice. That's amazing. <laughs> 
Is that your broadsword, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> the, the horrible nightmares. <laughs> I shouldn't have edited that. Right okay, more, more, more questions from anime. Uh, there is so much folklore, mythology, history about subjects like a hand of glory. How do you choose what to include and exclude from the universe of Wormwood? Um, I think I can answer that really basically. I think I already did answer that when I said that when I when we wrote it into the original series Bible, the idea was that the hand is said to open any door and that's what we took from it that it's the it is cut from a hanged thief prepared a certain way and is used to be able to open any door and we that's even in the first episode i think jeremy had written first or second episode jeremy had written something where uh, the sheriff has a window that's stuck and crow comes in and opens it very easily (laughs) so it was there from the beginning very subtly that was the main thing we used it for uh when it came to these stories um I just from I I I don't know about you guys, but I just sort of added stuff as I felt it would be fun. I and obviously in Dead Man's Hand, I used the idea that um, you know, it it would it could open doors, you know. But I just kind of expanded that definition a bit. Um, I also added a bit of mythology in that it it cannot be, it has to be either. It has to be uh, given to the next person either through a, tra- a sales transaction of some kind, or uh, you know, has to be bequeathed to that person. Um, uh, so, yeah, see, I use that quite a bit in the the, the whole revelation of the ending of mine. You know, I, exactly since right. I since I didn't have the hand at all in any scene, the main character did, didn't even know it existed. But using that that whole thing that it can't just be taken it has to be it has to be you know, sold. It has to be you know. And I believe in a brief bit of continuity, I we added that line into Paul's story left at the towards the end. There's a part where we mention that the uh, the Wrightson collection was sold. I, yes. I think it was the yeah. grandfather's name, so I, I think I made the name Simon Wrightson or something like that. So there actually is a little bit of continuity in there. Um, um, you even mentioned Brezier in oh, Dead Man's Hand. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, there, uh, there's. Well, I think there's a question coming up asking about. Uh, um, uh, stuff. So, I, but yes, uh, I did tie it in um, with Brezier into the end of Dead Man's Hand. So there's a little continuity bridge there as well. Um, and just to tease that even a little bit more, in the episode that I just wrote, a, uh, a portrait about Brezier, I even mentioned your mention of an earlier Brezier. <laughs> so see, we have a plan, people. We have a plan. Plan. <laughs> So, I mean, for me, that's what it was. I don't know if you guys used any additional mythology or, or did any additional research on the Hand of Glory or anything like that. Um, you can speak to that if so. For me, just very quickly, for Memento Mori, I just looked at it um, and, I, and I thought about it uh, as being um, uh, period and genre specific to the kind of story I was telling. So I looked at it. It was more um, uh, uh, the Edgar Allan Poe element of like the Telltale Heart. It's just sort of an ominous, um, like a, a point of tension um, in that in that final scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, to be honest, I didn't really think strictly in terms of the rules of the hand or or what the abilities were. Um, and again, it's it's unreliable narrator, so you can sort of interpret it as you will. But mm-hmm. um, I just looked at it as how would um, a creepy hand turn up in that kind of story? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And and I think it it definitely works in that sense. Um, yeah, I like the idea of taking that in the context of the uh, of the the piece of writing. Um, another question is: Are any of the characters we met in the short stories going to come back in the rest of season three? Um, so, uh, well, Doug Demay's hands <laughs> will appear again. Uh, the big one, obviously, is Henry in uh, in the story left, 
Yeah. And um, aside from that, uh, well, Adramalek in the in the thief story as well. Um, aside from those, um, no guarantees. Brezier is mentioned in Dead Man's Hand. Obviously, you know he's got a role in the current storyline. Um, any anyone else? Anybody have plans for additional um, stuff? I don't think so. Um, no, just uh, it's just not to say that it can't fit in as we need it. You know, I mean, these things are created, and I could definitely see elements being used. I guess, I guess, I will say the other thing that I would like to get to, if we can, but it, it's only if it fits into the overall story. I won't shoehorn anything in that doesn't need to be in there. But I did like the idea of uh, of the expanded definition of what the hand can do, and the fact that it can open doors into other places. Um, was kind of an idea that I would I would like to visit again. So that's not that's not necessarily a character, but an aspect of that story. So uh, the next question is: Have you ever considered doing a film or television version of Wormwood, or do you prefer the medium of sound only? We've answered this one a couple times. Jeremy, you want to tackle that one? <laughs> yeah, you would love to turn it into a TV show. I mean, it seems like it's made for a TV show, even though it, it fits so perfectly in the audio format and, and with these stories that we're telling, but. It's a rich enough universe that I would love to turn it into a feature script or a long-running TV series. Um, comic I like books, how you say long-running. Long-running. Emphasis on that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's been the greatest thing about this project so far is the fact that it, it's the longest-running story I've ever worked on. It, it's not something that you, you definitely, you know, you, you sit down and you're done with it. You're, we're, we're, we're growing with these, with these storylines and with these characters and we're, really able to dive in deeper than anything else I've ever done. So, yeah, I mean, definitely I would like to turn it into a, a, a TV series. I do have an idea for a, um, for, for a feature script that I, I remember I took some notes on a long time ago. I think back in season one when there was some, uh, when there was some fiction going up on the website. Um, I had this idea about the end, of, the end of Crow, you know, years down the line that would work perfectly for a, for a feature-length script. So, I don't know. It's something something I'm toying with. Yeah, I guess I guess the best way to say it is that we 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 love the medium of sound, no doubt about it. We love that we're able to tell this story this way. But for us, we're storytellers, and that can mean a lot of different things. And and what I think the most important thing for us is that we love this universe that we created. I think you said it, Jeremy. You know, the universe mm-hmm. is. And and so for me, like I know that I want to tell a specific crow story that's a novel. You know, in other cases, I can absolutely see, uh, you know, a television version of Wormwood. I think it would be so much fun. I mean, as everyone who's listened to the show and listened to the chats that I've done before knows that I'm a huge fan of Twin Peaks and that, you know, much of this uh, uh, Wormwood as it began, you know, had to, had a lot to do with uh, Twin... It was very influenced by Twin Peaks. And so, you know, I could definitely see a show like that going on the air. And we have talked about how to do the first season as as a feature film and stuff, too. So, we, yeah, you know... Even if, it's, even if it's not even the first season, I mean... Yeah. The, Show is strong enough that these these three seasons in audio work work just fine. I think. Yeah, yeah, and that that's but important there, to know. There's so much we could tell in in any. I mean, we could tell a completely different Wormwood story or Xander Crow story yeah. in in TV. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's important to note we're not like trying to get into TV and 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 we're just you know doing this as a pilot or something. It's it's not that I'm we trying definitely... to get into commercials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, you know, we, we definitely, we love the, the, uh, audio medium. And I know that's, I know for Paul, that was one of the things that, that drew him to us, um, and to our show because he, he liked that as well. Um, and you know, I really love the idea that it's something that, you know, we could put out and podcast every, every week or every couple weeks or as our schedule, uh, <laughs> uh, goes, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's something that we, we think of ourselves, I think, as storytellers first and foremost. And so we, we always are looking at the potential of, oh, I could see doing this this way. You know, and so I have one story. Like I said, it's a novel. You know, we've all thought of different things, a comic book, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Definitely. It, and and I'm, not, I'm not a creator um, uh, on this series, but, um, you know, I'm thinking about the other senses, um, like taste, for example. Um, so you might see, like, Raleigh Blake fruit snacks is one of the, the <laughs> concepts I'm thinking about. So, uh, Watch out for those. <laughs> Aisle three. <laughs> nice. On that note, the next question is, have any of you had any had your own occult or otherworldly experiences? Briefly, anyone? <laughs> um, I'm working on a project that I can't really talk about exactly, um, which involved sleeping over in a haunted church. Um, so that was interesting. Um, I didn't see anything as cool as you might expect on one of those kind of field trips, but uh, definitely very odd. Uh, I'm always interested in that kind of stuff. Um, everybody loves things that go bump in the night, and we, I think everybody, no matter how cynical you are, you kind of want to believe in that stuff, at least in some way. So, uh, so yeah, a, a little bit, but uh, nothing I can go into, into great detail yet. I believe I was briefly possessed by a raccoon um, back in June for about 15 okay. minutes or so. Um, aside from that, you know, other than uh, my dad's college roommate uh, lived in the house that was, apparent, was supposedly haunted by Aaron Burr. Um, cool. You know, that was cool, but I, you know, I, I, no, I have not experienced anything, which may be why I write so much about it, because I think it's so cool, but I have not experienced anything. Jeremy, you? Oh, 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 oh I've, seen, I've seen the Jersey Devil. Uh, I live in Philly, and, and we go down the shore all the time. I've seen the Jersey Devil, so there you go. I was very young, but... All right. Yeah, I, the big red goat. Go ahead. <laughs> I saw I saw a big fuzzy arm once in the woods. But beyond that, I don't know if I even believe in any of this stuff. It's just it's it's fun to play with. You know? Absolutely. Hey, That's no this? fun. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, but let's let's stick to the big hairy arm. Because I, <laughs> okay. I, I I remember I, I was a kid, I saw a big hairy arm, I thought in this little thicket of trees outside by my house and I was I was pretty young and I, I, I freaked out thinking that well whatever it was saw me and will come for me at night. So I set up a tape recorder outside my bedroom window that night thinking, well, I'll, I'll, I'll catch audio you know, footage of it. Not realizing that this was 1983, 84, something like that. And it was probably a 30 minute tape. So I, I hit record, I go back inside and the tape ran out before I even went to sleep. I'm sure so it <laughs> did, didn't capture anything, but beyond that, I don't think so. There, 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 there were there were little handprints, a little dusty kid handprints on on my car one time. That um, I don't know where those came from. We we were uh, we were dra- uh, driving down a road in the the countryside, and we we had stopped to go inside this abandoned house. We we run around the house for a while, get back in the car, and leave. We're driving down this gravel road, and I mean, we're we're an hour from anywhere. And That's there's this tree Blair block. Which of you? It is. It is. There's there's this tree blocking the road. So we we get out, we move the tree, we come back to the car, which was you know, right there on the road, and the back end of the car is just covered in little handprints. Kind of freaky. 
Now I feel so the most movies. mundane. I don't even have anything close. <laughs> I've always had friends that have some story, you know, of seeing something or whatever, but I have not personally. It'll happen. So, I know. Yeah. It's just like you just have. Go ahead. You have to want it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and alcohol helps a lot. I did. <laughs> I did say Bloody Mary into the mirror in the dark, you know, five times, and I swear I saw a reflection. But it was me. <laughs> All right, l- l- let's continue on. Um, we got a few more to get through here. Alexa Chipman uh, on the forums also. Uh, well, she ditto, She said, ditto on the question about whether we'll see any characters return, and will we see a bit more bridge episodes between the latest hand story and the current Wormwood era? And the answer to that is definitively yes, yes. as Paul uh, mentioned. Um, she would also love to hear about our research process for these stories and the hand itself. Are you Google folk or ancient library white glove wearing folk when it comes to research? <laughs> um, Google folk. Google folk. <laughs> Admittedly, Google folk. <laughs> I use Wikipedia probably more than I should. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't. Right. I don't use it on academic papers, but I will use it on Look, stories. That we're are dealing for with the fictional <laughs> occult research. I don't know how we really have to, you know, how in detail we really have to get since we're fictionalizing a lot of it anyway. But I definitely mm-hmm. use it as a touchstone for things. Um, use uh, Google and, and Wikipedia and whatnot. And and in this particular one, I mean, I did have the books in front of me for the authors. You know, that was without a doubt, you know, um, the physical thing. But that's, you know, that's different. That's the construction of the story. In terms of uh, the elements, I mean, everything from... I did find an old um, a, a, an old scan of a newspaper article about an archaeological find uh, that mentioned Sefervime. So, I mean, there, there's stuff that was, you know, actual scanned from documents like that, but I did find it through Google. So, you know, mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> I, um, see, I had to look up to see when microwave ovens became popular to have in households. Because I didn't think it was in the 60s. It's it always is. that stuff. It's That's the stuff that you really <laughs> spend so much time researching. It's like the little things. <laughs> yeah. like, does, did this exist yet? Like I was ri- This isn't you know, for Wormwood, but I was writing another script and I was like, would there have been bicycles like 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 bicycles as we know them at this point? And because I was writing this period piece, and and you know I had to look that up, and I was like, no, there weren't. So I had to to write around that. But um, yeah, it's it's all the little little researchy things that um, when like to make sure you're not making anachronisms. Really. Exactly. Um, I think the the research that people probably think about um, as you know where did you come up with like this historical thing that's usually like the kernel of the story is mm-hmm. I mean like for me I didn't go looking for uh, what you know what are the you know mummies in Sicily like because I didn't know there were mummies in Sicily until I read this article and that was the kernel for the story so it's like oh, I should write about these mummies <laughs> in Sicily because it's a cool tourist attraction but it's an even cooler scary story. So, um, and, and, you know, you bend the truth a little bit on it and that's okay. Exactly. Um, so, uh, there you go. Research. Yeah. yeah. Fun absolutely, stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't get too caught up in it like Dave, because then you'll <laughs> add more plot points. Yeah. <laughs> I did spend some time looking at like clothing styles and things like that for the 1920s story, you know, and like, you know, but so that's very true. It's like the kernel usually comes from something that you're just like, you're, you know, listening to a podcast, you're reading a newspaper article, whatever, and then something hits you. You're like, I can use that somewhere, you mm-hmm. know, but, but then when you're actually writing the thing that trips you up, makes you stop and go and research things are those little details. So that's absolutely true. Um, okay, uh, wrapping up the questions. Love to ride eight oh one said asked um, the episode left really left me hanging. Are we going to hear the rest of that story? So again, that's kind of like the other one. Yes, we will. Yep. Yeah, at least in some aspects of it. Um, 
I think we've covered that already. How many episodes do you have planned for season three? I'm just wondering how long Wormwood will last. Um, so, love to ride. We can tell you right now that uh, Five Fingers was five episodes. Portraits is eight episodes. And the final volume of season three is looking to be roughly about eight episodes, but I would say it could go anywhere from eight to ten, depending on how deep we get into it and realize we need more episodes. But right now the plan is for eight episodes. Um, so that ties into uh, the next question, which is, do you have plans for season four or anything once you're done with Wormwood? Maybe a different audio drama. Um, so I mentioned the uh, Crow novel. Um, we don't have plans for season four right now. We've talked about it. Various writers have talked about doing things. We've even talked about spinning off series from this and, and go, doing something else that's not called Wormwood but exists in the same universe or uses some of the same characters. Um, anyone else have anything they want to add to that? Well, you know, I don't know that I'd want to do a season four of this show because this show definitely does have a closure to it. Um, a spinoff, a, a completely new new story w- would be fine, but I just don't know if I would would see it the same way as a fourth season. Um, I mean, I'm all for novels, uh, screenplays, um, film treatments, uh, even new, even new audio storylines, but I don't know. I'm I'm still locked in on, you know, just getting to the end of this season, bringing this to, bringing this to an end that this is a natural closure to what we started back, you know, in 2007. That is absolutely true. You know, it's not to say that the universe is over. It's to say no. that the story we began in season one, episode one, comes to a natural closing point at the end of season three as we have it planned. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, there, there could be spinoffs from that. And we definitely have talked about that. Um, so uh, I had another thought there, and I forgot about it. Uh, Paul, anything from you? <laughs> well, I, I I like the format and sort of like you guys have been have been doing this longer than I have. I only came in on on midpoint of season two, so I'm still ready and raring to go. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm excited to work on on you know anything to come afterwards, and um, even you know new stories in this format. I, lo- I love both the story and I love the medium that we're telling the story in. So um, whatever we got planned, uh, I'm I'm all set to <laughs> You're go. You're on board. So, we yeah. um we we did we one of the, I remembered what I was going to mention is that another thing that I would could see us doing is while this story comes to a natural close something along the line of a spinoff is I wouldn't mind seeing an anthology type series that's sort of a tales of Wormwood you know doing little stories set in different time periods if you have looked at our website there is a fiction section which has a few uh, prose fiction stories um, from different time periods and they're more standalone stories kind of like the Five Fingers stories. And I could definitely see doing something, and it could be an audio book format, um, like Five Fingers, or it could even be an audio drama, I don't know. But I could see us doing from time to time Lost Tales uh, of Wormwood and, and, and kind of exp- exploring that universe, different pockets of it in different ways. Um, so, yeah, definitely. I, we're, not cl- we're not entirely closing any doors. That we, we're, just, we're just ending one particular story, and then we'll, we'll reevaluate from there. So those are the questions that we had. Very good questions. Kept us talking. Um, And I think that about wraps us up. Um, Just to let you guys all know. um, Well, before I get into that, do you guys have any last words to say? No. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of anything. Okay, good. Excellent. I'm just ready to to get working on the the next script. So more (laughs) stories to tell. All right, Paul, go get to work on the script. Um, What we have next to let you guys know is Wormwood Portraits. We're going to... This is going to come in about a month. 
give or take. I'm not going to give a specific time because I don't want to blow it. But we are working at this on the scripts right now. We're plan we're in production planning and everything like that. But we have Wormwood portraits. There are going to be eight of those. They each feature a different character, but they do move the narrative forward. And then from there, we're going to move into uh, Wormwood Revelations. But for right now, we're going to take about a month off to get the production rolling and everything like that. And then we will come back with that. So that is the next you're going to hear from us, um, unless we absolutely have something great that we have to just share with you on a podcast. But uh, <laughs> that's the plan right now. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to uh, Wormwood and the Five Fingers of Glory. Thanks for listening to this little chat. Um, Paul, Jeremy, thank you guys for joining me tonight. Thanks. It was Absolutely. fun. And uh, all right, everyone. We'll see you for Wormwood Portraits. Wormwood, a serialized mystery, is a podcast production of Habit Forming Films, LLC. Original music compositions by Todd Hodges. Introduction and credits read by Joe J. Thomas. The Wormwood writing staff includes David Acampo, Jeremiah Allen, Rob Allspaugh, Paul Montgomery, Jeremy Rogers, and Tiffany K. Whitney. Wormwood created by David Acampo and Jeremy Rogers. Copyright 2009. Wormwood cannot be reproduced in part or whole without the express written consent of its creators. For more information on the cast, creators, and individual episodes, please visit us on the web at www.wormwoodshow.com. Thank you for listening, and welcome to town.